Mashenka, or Varenka, buries her face in her hands. He will not speak, she murmurs as if to herself. It is clear that he insists that I make the ultimate sacrifice. I cannot love him as I still love another, and yet... I will give this some thought. I will. I'll give it some thought. I'll muster up all the strength in my soul, and perhaps in sacrificing my own happiness, I can save this man from his suffering. I have no idea what she's talking about. A baffled young man. This week on Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. On this program, characters speak their minds, and we get way too much information. First, Dmitry Bidikov's Hello. This pithy story was part of an evening of works in translation we presented with the international literary organization Words Without Borders. Everyone will recognize the setting, an overcrowded bus. But Bidikov turns this familiar urban plight into a fantasy. When there is no personal space, a collective unconscious fills the cracks in between bodies. Mike Doyle performs. Hello. Have you ever traveled in an overcrowded bus, rammed up against the window with your cheeks squashed against the glass and the handrail bruising your ribs? No need to answer. Of course you have. No, really, I'm not being rude. Why am I asking? Because I need somewhere to start, and that was the setting of the incident which set off the thoughts which underlie this narrative. All right, so I got on a bus. Well, no, I didn't just get on. I forced my way in like a digger biting into sand. Then, amoeba-like, I assumed the shape of the gap between the jostling bodies of my fellow passengers. Good morning, comrades! And slithered my way to the window. My face was squashed against the glass. The handrail was bruising my ribs. Okay, okay. The bus pulled out and my fellow citizens were winnowed into place. Just as well that when push came to shove, we all proved soft-bodied. Our narrative has begun. Hello? Fortune favors some over others. The start of a good day is when you get a seat on public transport. Your hand is free to follow its trajectory to your pocket, withdraw your mobile phone, and proceed with it thence, as the requisite buttons are pressed, to your ear. Yes, hi, it's me. A moment's silence. On my way to work. Another short pause. Why not? Okay, fine, no problem. Why? When? Yeah, sure, no, it's cool. I'll call you when I get there. So long. (laughs) Me too. The hand follows the reverse route from her ear, pressing the end call key as it does so, to her pocket. Eyelids close on a face in her hand. The fortunate young lady in possession of a seat now has every right to doze until she reaches her office and has all the necessary conditions for doing so. What dreams are you dreaming? Cruiser Aurora? Detonator of the great October socialist revolution? No, wrong frame of reference. The dreams of the poet's fair lady are a better metaphor. What was the voice on the telephone proposing? What did you agree to? Will you follow him wherever he goes? Are you in love? 
May blessings light upon you. I hope you both find happiness. But let us step back a few moments. The conversation is still in progress. The emoticon has not yet closed its eyes, and the young lady enthroned on her very own seat in the bus is cooing unabashed with her beloved, heedless of the passengers crowded around her. Of what interest to her are they in their problems and hopes, their toes trodden on by the people next to them, their arms numb from immobility and stretched by heavy bags? Her soft-bodied fellow citizens, however, have turned and are looking at her with curiosity. How interesting to know what the two of them have just agreed to. Even more intriguing, so intriguing indeed, that they have quite forgotten their trampled toes and numb arms, which by now might as well belong to someone else, is that casually dropped phrase which just slipped from her tongue. Me too. You too what? And he too what? Just what are you reciprocating? Did he say he loves you? Or something quite different, like... I'd forgotten you completely, for instance. In which case, you replied that you'd completely forgotten him, too. No. Perhaps he did say he loves you. But is he telling you the truth? I mean, love. Do you really know what love is? Have you the faintest inkling? Well, all of us standing here do. Don't underestimate the reason for our looking so exhausted. It's not because we haven't had enough sleep and are all pressed against each other so early in the morning. We have been worn out by love, the immensity of which has filled us to overflowing, which is why we take up so much space. If we didn't know love, we would have withered, and there would be plenty of room for everyone in the bus, <laughs> which is actually quite spacious. Hey, just a minute. Why all this finger-pointing? Are you trying to pretend you are so amazingly well brought up you don't poke your nose into other people's business, unlike certain other passengers who are demonstrably less well brought up? I'm addressing this to myself. What else can you do if you're being crucified on a handrail other than talk to yourself? Admit it, pal, you're hoovering up every word, constructing hypotheses, trying to reconstitute such fragments of this enthralling dialogue as were inaccessible to your ear. Just turn away right now and close your ears. Ah, but first I need to detach my cheek from this window and find out what's happened to my arms among all these bodies pressing against each other. <sighs> right then, love. If you only knew, dear young lady, the things I have experienced in my life. To give you just one example, <sighs> but actually, what is there to tell? It's just that the minute I see her, every cell in my body is filled with something ethereal. I feel as if I'm walking on air. I glance at her again and uh, nope, sorry, I have to tell you the rest another time. It's my stop, I need to get off the bus. I assume liquid form and flowing like a mountain stream over rapids percolate through my fellow citizens. All the best, comrades. Ah, love. <laughs> That was Mike Doyle's reading of Hello by Dmitry Bidikov. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Next, a misguided craft project turns into an episode of CSI. The always funny Jenny Allen brings us How to Tie-Dye. It's performed by the always funny Jane Curtin. 
Back in New York, a raging blizzard has shut down the airports. The lone daily flight to New York out of the tiny airport where you are in West Virginia will not be leaving anytime soon. One or two days, the woman you finally reach at Delta after hundreds of minutes on hold tells you, this was not your plan. Your plan was to attend parents' weekend at your child's school in the pretty rolling foothills of the Appalachians and go back home where you could get a cup of coffee that tastes like coffee, not the feeble stuff that people drink here, and buy the New York Times. But parents' weekend is over, and here you are in your room at the Holiday Inn Express, which is where? Not in town, exactly. Outside your filmy window is your vista, the interstate, and a sprawl of newish stores, a Walmart, an auto body shop, a 99-cent store, a store that sells discount cigarettes by the carton and beer by the case, and Applebee's. The real town with a main street and sidewalks is several miles down the road, but now it's not a real town either. Main street is all antique shops and gift shops and pricey bistros catering to the guests of a grand old resort somewhere near here and to the parents at your child's school. So actually, the view out your window is more of the real town, more of the real America. It's a shame you don't drink anymore. What a perfect time and place to go on a bender. All your needs would be met, alcohol, ciggies, and a 99-steak dinner to wolf down after a happy day of drinking on an empty stomach. Maybe that temptation is what gives you the idea of doing a crafts project. Or maybe it's that Christmas is coming and you're thinking about what presents to give your loved ones if you ever get out of here. For whatever reason, you decide that making something with your hands would be fun, or failing fun, something to do. You're not too good at crafts projects. Fifteen years after your attempt to make snow globes for Christmas presents, tiny white plastic flakes are still embedded in your carpet. But that's what you like about them. You feel like you're seven years old again. Wow, you think, admiring the lumpy little ceramic doodad or limp worked over origami bird you've produced. I made this. Here's your idea. You're going to tie-dye a lot of T-shirts for your young adult children and nieces and nephews. Tie-dyed T-shirts are very in now, and yours will be made for song, while other less crafty people will be buying theirs for $98 a piece on Avenue A. First, you go to Walmart, which is right next door to the Holiday Inn Express. Normally, you boycott Walmarts because of the company's heinous labor practices, but there aren't any Walmarts where you live, so this has mostly been a theoretical position. <laughs> You forget about all the horrible labor practices two seconds after entering the store because Walmart is so amazing, so vast, like a store in a dream, endless aisles of shockingly inexpensive things. Trinkets, sunglasses, little makeup holders for your purse, 10 pairs of underpants for $3, many of which you toss into a shopping cart the size of a Zamboni that you feel you're driving instead of pushing. You spend an hour wandering the aisles in a pleasant fugue state, tossing things into your huge cart. To your surprise, this Walmart barely has a craft section. A hunting gear section, yes, with many day-glow orange caps and vests. A candy section, 10 or 12 acres worth. Hershey bars big enough to club someone over the head with. Raisinets in bags the size of feed sacks. 
And great buckets of candies you hardly ever see anymore. Those pale orange soft ones shaped like big peanuts, white nut-studded nougats, and a hair care section, also enormous, aisle upon aisle of shampoos and mousses and gels and creams and unguents and shellacs. If aliens came to our planet and Walmart was their first stop, they would say, this is a species that worships hair and toothlessness. <laughs> the craft section is so dinky. A few shelves, mostly kitty stuff, some old little mermaid paint-by-the-numbers kits, a few dusty packets of modeling clay. You may have romanticized the people who live around here. You thought craft-making was still going on in this part of the country, quilt-making and Afghan-making and such, but everyone here has probably turned to beer and television like the rest of the world for their entertainment. But here, on a bottom shelf, is a tie-dye kit. And here, several miles away in the underwear section, are 12 men's t-shirts for $3.99. Fate is smiling on your project. You try not to be impatient in the checkout line, where you wait for a long time while the checkout woman and a customer are shooting the breeze as if there was no one in line at all. You gather from the conversation that the customer is going to have a baby shower for her goddaughter, whom the cashier used to babysit. They are practically planning the whole shower right there, discussing recipes for sherbet, punch, and ideas for the party games. Finally, you say, excuse me, but I'm in a little bit of a hurry. The cashier and the customer trade a look, and the customer silently takes her shopping cart and marches toward the door. Everything is not all rush, 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 you know, she says over her shoulder. You feel bad. You didn't realize that Walmart is the town square now, that this is where people exchange the news of the day in a leisurely way, and that you've ruined their visit. I'm sorry, you say to the cashier, but it's too late. She jams your purchases into plastic bags, not looking at you. Back in your room, you lay out the contents of the tie-dye kit on the floor, a big plastic sheet to protect the carpeting from getting stained with dye as you work, a million rubber bands, packets of powdered red, yellow, and blue dyes. You pour the dyes into the little squirt bottles provided, mix them with tap water, and shake them up. You're ready to work. Oh, not yet, the directions say, to wash the T-shirts before dyeing them. You find the laundry room down the hall and exchange several dollar bills for quarters with Rick, the nice day manager. You load the washing machine with the t-shirts, noticing that the woman next to you in a tank top that shows off the array of tattoos on her arms is doing a surprisingly large load of laundry. She explains that she and her husband and kids live just up the street, but have decided to spend the weekend here as a kind of a treat. So she's brought a lot of laundry from home. While the t-shirts are being washed, you head over to Applebee's for dinner. Teresa, your friendly young waitress, points to your hands and says, looks like you've been painting something. Your hands, you now notice, have been stained red, the color of boiled lobster claws, by the red dye. You laugh and tell Teresa about the project. She tells you that her fiancé loves to wear tie-dyed shirts and is in a heavy metal band with Rick's brother, Tracy. After your T-shirts have been washed and dried to damp as instructed, it's time to decide what patterns you'll make. For the popular sunburst pattern, for example, you pinch the center of the T-shirt between thumb and forefinger and hold up the shirt so that the rest of it falls loosely 
like an empty parachute. Then you wrap about a thousand rubber bands tightly around it, leaving a thin section of shirt in between each rubber band. Doing this to 12 shirts takes you five hours. <laughs> While you do it, you watch a local hunting show on television. The show is simple in concept. Hunters are shown hunting in real time. In this episode, two hunters crouch behind some bushes, waiting for the deer to appear. You think that buck's gonna show up, Steve? I hope so, Mike. My boots are sure soaked. You feel sorry for the buck. But there's something valiant about Steve and Mike stuck out there in the soggy brush, waiting and waiting. They're like Vladimir and Estragon, only in fluorescent orange caps. <sighs> now, though it's practically the break of day, you're ready to die. Carefully at first, and then with increasing abandon, you squirt the different colors of dye onto the shirts, this time not failing to use the plastic gloves provided in the kit. You leave the rubber-banded dyed shirts on the plastic tarp so the dye can set for a few hours. You wake up in the morning, a little bleary from lack of sleep, but eager to see the results of your labors. You begin rinsing out the t-shirts in the sink, as instructed, to wash out the extra dye. Each shirt takes 40 minutes or so to rinse and wring out, and your wrists hurt so much that you wonder if tie-dyeing can give a person carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> By the fifth shirt, you decide to just dump the rest of the shirts in the sink and let them soak while you go downstairs to enjoy the free breakfast buffet, perhaps followed by a soak in the hotel's jacuzzi. On the way to the breakfast buffet, you pass the pool room and notice through its picture window that the jacuzzi is packed with splashing children. Sitting nearby is the mother from the laundry room who smiles at you and holds up her can of Dr. Pepper in greeting. A chatty older lady named Patty manages the breakfast buffet. She's heard about your tie-dye project from Teresa, she says, whom she used to babysit who lives next door to her. Hun, Teresa told me it looks like you killed something with your bare hands, Patty says with a little laugh. Still a raw-looking red, your hands do kind of look like you killed something. Maybe you better go back to your room and give them a really good scrubbing. You share the elevator with the kids from the pool, shivering in their towels. At first, they're laughing and pummeling each other playfully, but when you get on the elevator, they'll look at your hands and fall silent. <laughs> but I, I've been tie-dyeing in my room, you say a little too brightly. Yes, ma'am. A skinny little boy says and looks at the floor. You feel like you're lying, or like they think you're lying. Boy, it's so ridiculous. <sighs> Back in your bathroom, the water in the sink is a dark, ugly, brownish purple. You dredge out the soggy t-shirts and set them on a big white towel and let out the sink water. The empty sink basin is stained with some shade of puce. You wonder if you'll get a charge on your bill for sink replacement. Also, the color is upsetting. The color of liver, of internal organs. It looks like a butcher has been at work in here. Who could be you with your red hands and all? But you've just been tie-dyeing. What are you so worried about? You buy a packet of powdered bleach from the laundry room. The mother is in here again, stuffing another giant load of laundry into the dryer. And back in your room, you scrub the sink with the bleach using your toothbrush. The stain fades, but the basin is still tinged a faint brownish purple. And your hands, 
Well, you scrub them too, like a surgeon, like Lady Macbeth, but they stay an angry red. The stain of your deeds. What deeds? It's not like you murdered somebody in here. But it is, sort of. I mean, someone could think that, and, and now you notice the towel you've carelessly laid wet shirts on is stained that liverish brown. You rinse and rinse the towel under running water, but still the dye will not wash out. You'll have to hide the towel in your suitcase and take it home with you. Now you rinse out the shirts one by one. Amazingly, the shirts have taken on none of the hideous hue of the sink water, but instead retain their bright separate colors, each shirt a merry red and blue and yellow. They look great. They look like festive clown wear. Working with running water as you are, you don't hear anyone enter. A young woman is standing there. It's Brianna from housekeeping. I'm sorry, ma'am. I thought you all went out. Brianna is Patty's second cousin. You know this because Brianna is like Patty, loquacious, and here with her cleaning cart. And yesterday morning when she came to clean your room, she told you how she is staying with Patty for a while to save on rent so she could pay for her wedding to Ron, whom Ruth introduced her to because Ruth used to teach Sunday school with Ron's mother, and who is Rick, the day manager's hunting buddy. But Brianna isn't chatting right now. Now she's staring at you and your room, and the bathroom, and smiling in a confused, worried way. Oh, I'm sorry you surprised me. I'm just tie-dyeing, you say. You look at your surroundings. It's awful in here. <laughs> the purple-brownish sink for one. For two, the stained towel you rested the shirts on. For three, the room is an unholy mess, the mess of a crazed, disturbed person. Empty squirt bottles tossed about, rubber bands everywhere. Your rumpled, unmade bed, the plastic sheet on the floor covered with dark, pooled-together blobs of dye. There's something sinister about a big plastic sheet. Yours is no exception. <laughs> and now you notice a red smear on the wall from where you steadied yourself with your hand to get up on the floor while you were tie-dyeing. Do you think you could come back a little later? You say to Brianna, yes, ma'am, she says and leaves quickly. Who knows what Brianna's thinking? but she's going to bend Patty's ear about the chaos in here. That's for certain. Brianna and Patty are probably thinking you've murdered someone and that tie-dyeing was just a cover. Or maybe you're tie-dyeing all of your victim's clothes <laughs> so that no one will be able to identify them as his or her clothes. Or maybe you're a serial killer and tie-dyeing your victim's clothes is the art you create from your kill, your trophy. What a sick, sick trophy. Happy clownish raiments made from the wardrobe of your kill. Or maybe you slaughtered a school of clowns. <laughs> okay, there's nobody. You have that going for you. But there will be. Of that, you may be sure. Everyone owns a gun here and uses it, even Patty, who's a grandmother many times over, told you she goes hunting every weekend for muskrat with her husband. Someone, some transient, someone like you, will show up dead in a dumpster in the back of some local parking lot, having been shot in a bar fighter for letting their hound dog wander into someone's yard, or having been beaten to death with a bucket of nut-studded nougats for sport by local hoodlums high on crystal meth. <laughs> and you, the stranger in town, will be suspect numero uno. You review your alibis. 
the places you've been in the past hours where people have seen you not murdering someone. The cashier and the customer from the checkout line at Walmart hate you and will say that you seemed agitated and in a rush. <laughs> Teresa from Applebee's will note your red hands and suspicious blabbing about your tie-dyeing project. So will Patty. So will the little kids from the elevator whose mother, who cannot believe how close her children came to be slaughtered themselves, their little bathing suits turned into tie-dyed souvenirs will report how she thought it was weird that a single woman was laundering many men's t-shirts in the laundry room. And Brianna will clinch it with her description of your scream and the red smear on the wall and of the shocking mess in your room, clearly the result of a struggle. Everyone will think you're guilty because everyone here knows everyone, and already at least five of them know you did it. And they're probably all related to the DA and to the public defender, who's probably the DA's brother, so just Forget about a vigorous defense. The public defender will be winking at the jury while you give your lame testimony, I was just tie-dying. And his wink will say, yeah, right. But there's DNA. DNA will save you because there won't be any in your room, except for yours. None from your victim. You never appreciated DNA until now. Thank God they discovered it. But wait. The mother saw you buying bleach in the laundry room, which anyone knows who has ever watched a TV crime show knows it's what the killer uses to get rid of DNA evidence. Oh, clearly there's only one thing to do, and that is to drive your rental car over to the police station and turn yourself in. <laughs> they won't give you the death penalty if you confess. You'll just spend the rest of your life in the women's prison down the interstate. Your family will visit you, but not that often because it's so far away. You will pass your days in your cell, being served grits and boiled broccoli on a tin tray shoved through a slot in your cell door. Maybe it won't be so bad. You've always had a soft spot for grits. Maybe they'll have franks and beans, which you also like and fresh biscuits, and hip-hop aerobics in the yard. At least you won't have to live like this in constant fear, which is no kind of life at all. You can already tell. Maybe there'll be crafts projects as therapy. <laughs> You'll pass on the tie-dyeing. But you'd enjoy lanyard making and potholder making. That would be fun for you, or at least a way to pass the time. Oh, look, here's a text message from Delta. Your flight has been canceled again. The blizzard back home is over, but now the storm is headed here, and they've closed the airport. All you can really do is pray for leniency. Do not try that at home. Jane Curtin read How to Tie-Dye by Jenny Allen. I'm Cynthia Nixon. When we return, a moody young man from Anton Chekhov. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to SelectedShorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spinoff podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. As we've already heard in our first two stories, monologues and first-person stories reveal a lot about character. From the diary of a hot-tempered man is Anton Chekhov at his droll, satirical best. The self-important narrator wants to get on with his fascinating dissertation, but he's distracted by women who seem to have a different agenda. Sam Underwood read this story at an evening we devoted to the protean Russian author and playwright, hosted by Laura Strassfeld. Here's From the Diary of a Hot-Tempered Man. I'm a serious person and have a brain with a rational bent. I specialize in finance and I'm a student of financial law. The title of the dissertation I am planning is the past and future of the dog license. (laughs) Let me say here and now that I have no interest in young ladies, poetry, moonlight, and other such nonsense. It is morning, 10 o'clock. Mama pours me a cup of coffee. I drink it and go out onto our little balcony to start on my dissertation. I take a clean sheet of paper, dip my pen into the ink, and write out my title the past and future of the dog license. I ponder a while and then add a historical overview. Certain allusions in Herodotus and Xenophon, I begin, point to the origin of canine taxation as having been suddenly, I hear the sound of suspicious footsteps. I peer down from the balcony and see a young lady with a thin face and a thin waist Her name, I believe, is Nadenka, or Varenka, which, by the way, is of little importance. She's looking for something and pretends not to have noticed me. Harken back to that song, she sings. That song, oh, so tender. I look at the line I've just written and I'm about to continue when the young lady feigns to have caught sight of me. Good morning, Nikolai Andreevich, she calls out woefully. You cannot imagine the misfortune that has befallen me. There I was, going for my little walk yesterday, when I lost one of the charms from my bracelet. I study the opening line of my dissertation, add a twirl to an N, and I'm about to continue writing, but the young lady persists. Nikolai Andreevich, she calls, will you be so kind as to walk me home? The Karelins have such a frightfully big dog, I'm quite afraid of going unaccompanied. What is a man to do? I put down my pen and go downstairs. Nadenka, or Varenka, takes my arm, and we set off towards her house. Whenever the duty of walking arm in arm with a lady falls to me, I always feel like a peg on which someone has hung an extremely heavy coat. (laughs) It must be said that Nadenka, or Varenka, is of an ardent temperament. Her grandfather was Armenian. Has the habit of draping her entire weight on one's arm, and latching onto one side like a leech. (laughs) 
And so we walk along. As we pass the Corellins, I see their big dog, who reminds me of canine taxation. <laughs> I glumly think of the dissertation I have begun and sigh. You are sighing, Nadenka or Varenka asks, and she herself emits a sigh. Here I must add that Nadenka or Varenka, the now as I come to think of it, I believe her name might in fact be Mashenka, um, <laughs> for some reason believes that I'm in love with her and considers it her duty as a human being to look upon me with compassion and speak gentle words that will soothe my wounded soul. She stops. I know why you are sighing, she says. You are in love. It is true, but I assure you in the name of our friendship and with all my heart that the girl you love, though she has the deepest respect for you, cannot return your sentiments. Is she to blame if her heart has for oh so long belonged to another? Mashenka's nose turns red and begins to swell. Her eyes fill with tears. She's evidently expecting an answer, but to my good fortune, we have just arrived at her house. Outside on the porch sits Mashenka's mama, a fine woman, but one of fixed principles. She takes one look at her daughter's flustered face and then peers at me intently, sighing, as if to say, goodness gracious, young people nowadays, one can see right through them. <laughs> on the porch with her are a number of young ladies in bright frills and a retired officer who during the last war was wounded in the left temple and the right hip and is a neighbor to me. This unfortunate man, like myself, had intended to devote the summer to literary endeavors. He is writing the memoirs of a military man. And like me, he sets out on his noble task every morning, but no sooner has he written the words, I was born in, when some Varenka or Mashenka <laughs> invariably appears beneath his balcony and the wounded hero is marched away under guard. The entire party on the porch is busy preparing some horrid little berries for jam. I bow to the company, I'm about to turn on my heel when the young ladies in bright frills emit loud squeals and seize my hat, insisting I stay. I take a seat. They give me a plate heaped with berries and a hairpin, and I begin poking out the seeds. The young ladies in bright frills discuss various gentlemen. Such and such is quite handsome, and such and such is a fine figure of a man, though not agreeable. And such and such is quite agreeable, but not much to look at. And while such and such would have cut a fine figure if his nose did not resemble a thimble. <laughs> you, on the other hand, Monsieur Nicolas, Varenka's mama says, turning to me, you are not much to look at, <laughs> but you are agreeable. Your face does have a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> then again, she sighs, all things considered, what is vital in a man is not his looks, but his intelligence. With the young ladies sigh and lower their gaze. They too agree that what is vital in a man is not his looks, but his intelligence. I peer sideways into a looking glass to gauge the extent to which I look agreeable. I see a tousled head, tousled beard, a moustache, eyebrows, cheeks hairy all the way up to my eyes, a veritable thicket out of which a stout nose peers like a watchtower. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all, if I may say so myself. But at the end of the day, Nicholas, 
Narenka's mama says with a sigh as though she were about to put some profound thought into words. You do at least have your lofty soul to fall upon. <laughs> Narenka feels sorry for me, but the knowledge that a man who is passionately in love with her is sitting beside her fills her with delight. The young ladies finish discussing gentlemen and then turn to the subject of love. After a lengthy conversation on this topic, one of the ladies rises and leaves, while the ladies who remain begin tearing her to pieces. She's dim-witted, unbearable, plain, and of all things considered, she has a lopsided shoulder. <laughs> but praise be the Lord, I see our maid approaching. She has been sent by Mama to call me home to lunch. Now I can beat a hasty retreat and return to my work. I rise and bow to the company, but Varenka's Mama, Varenka herself, and the brightly frilled ladies encircle me and declare that it would be an outrage if I left, since I had solemnly promised the day before that I would have lunch with them and then go out into the woods hunting for mushrooms. I bow and sit back down again, my soul seething with fury. I feel at any moment now I might find myself unable to vouch for my actions that I will explode. But decorum and etiquette compel me to obey the ladies. And I do. So we sit down to lunch. The wound on the left temple of the injured officer has affected the mechanism of the jaw, and he eats as though his head has been bridled, and he has a bit in his mouth. I roll little balls of bread this way and that, think about canine taxation, and... Aware of what a hot-tempered man I am, strive to remain silent. Nadenka looks at me with sympathy. We are served vegetable soup, boiled beef tongue with peas, fried chicken, and compote. I have no appetite, but etiquette compels me to eat. So after lunch, I'm standing alone on the porch smoking when Mashenka's mama approaches me and gives my hand a squeeze. Do not despair, Nicholas, she confides in me breathlessly. She has such a heart. Such a heart. She is the soul of compassion. We walk to the woods to gather mushrooms. Varenka draped on my arm and latched onto my side. It is pure torture, but I bear it with fortitude. We enter the woods. Monsieur Nicholas, Varenka says with a sigh, why are you so sad? Why are you silent? What a particular question. Is there anything I could possibly talk to her about? What do we have in common? Say something, she implores. Uh, I try to come up with some popular topic or other that might be within her range of comprehension. And after some deliberation, say, the cutting down of forests has been a great detriment to Russia. Nicholas, Varenka sighs and her nose begins to turn red. Nicholas, I can see that you are trying to avoid expressing your feelings. You are seeking to punish me by your silence. A girl is unable to return your feelings and you are resolved to suffer in silence, in solitude. This is a terrible thing, Nicholas. She seizes my hand impulsively and I see her nose beginning to swell. What would you say if the young lady you love were to offer you eternal friendship? I mutter a few incoherent words, since I cannot for the life of me think of what to say. To begin with, I'm not in love with any young lady. And secondly, whatever would I need anyone's eternal friendship for? <laughs> Thirdly, I'm a hot-tempered man. 
Mashenka, or Varenka, buries her face in her hands. He will not speak, she murmurs as if to herself. It is clear that he insists that I make the ultimate sacrifice. I cannot love him as I still love another, and yet I will give this some thought. I will. I'll give it some thought. I'll muster up all the strength in my soul, and perhaps in sacrificing my own happiness, I can save this man from his suffering. I have no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) Some sort of riddle, no doubt. We walk on silently and begin picking mushrooms. Nadenka's face evinces signs of an inner struggle. I hear dogs barking. I think of my dissertation. (laughs) And emit a sigh. Between the trees, I catch sight of the wounded officer limping along painfully. The poor fellow is hampered on his right side by the wound in his hip and weighed down on his left side by one of the brightly frilled ladies. His face expresses a resignation to fate. We return to the house from the woods to take some tea, after which we play croquet and listen to one of the brightly frilled ladies singing a song. Nay, thou dost not love, nay, nay. At the word nay, she twists her mouth till it almost reaches her ears. Chamon! The other ladies go, Chamon! Evening approaches. A revolting moon comes slithering up from behind the bushes. <laughs> Silence hangs in the air, as does the unpleasant stench of freshly cut hay. I take my hat and attempt to leave. Don't go, Mashenka whispers to me significantly. I have something to tell you. I have the presentiment of danger, but etiquette compels me to remain. Mashenka takes my arm and walks me to a tree-lined path in the garden. By now, her entire person evinces signs of inner conflict. She is pale and breathless and seems intent on hauling my right arm out of its socket. Whatever can be wrong with her? I have to say this, she mutters, but no, no, I, I cannot, I cannot. She tries to speak, but wavers, though I can see from her face that she has come to some kind of decision. With gleaming eyes and swollen nose, she grabs my hand. Nicholas, I am yours, she quickly says. I cannot love you, but I promise to be true to you. (laughs) She throws herself at my chest, but then quickly pushes me away. Someone's coming, she whispers. Goodbye, tomorrow at 11 o'clock I'll be waiting in the alcove. Goodbye. And she vanishes. (laughs) Dumbfounded, my heart painfully palpitating, I make my way home. The past and future of the dog license is awaiting me. But I am no longer capable of working. I'm in the clutches of fury. One could well describe my anger as frightful. To the devil with it all. I will not be treated like a boy. I am a hot-tempered man, and all who trifle with me do so at their own risk. The maid comes in to call me to the dinner table, and I shout, Get out this instant. A hot temper such as mine does not bode well. The following morning, we have typical country weather, temperature below freezing, biting wind, rain, mud, and a smell of naphthalene, since Mama has taken her winter coats out of the trunk. A hellish morning, and it's the 7th of August, 1887. (laughs) The day we are to have 
a solar eclipse. I must point out here that the fact that during an eclipse, each and every one of us, without having to be an astronomer per se, can make great contributions to science. For example, among other things, we can all ascertain the diameters of the sun and the moon, draw a diagram of the sun's corona, measure the temperature, make observations of the comportment of plants and animals during the eclipse, note down our personal impressions. All of this is of prime importance. I am putting aside for the time being my past and future of the dog license and have arranged for all of us to study the eclipse. We all get up very early and I divide the task as follows. I will measure the diameter of the sun and the moon. The wounded officer will draw a diagram of the sun's corona while all the remaining observations will be undertaken by Mashenka and the brightly frilled young ladies. We gather together and wait. Why are there eclipses? Mashenka asks. Uh... A solar eclipse, I reply, comes about when the moon's orbit crosses the ecliptic plane and reaches the line that joins the center points of the sun and the earth. What does ecliptic mean? I explain. Mashenka listens attentively and then asks, if one peers through tinted glass, can one see the line that joins the center points of the sun and the earth? I inform her that it is only an imaginary line. If it is only an imaginary line, Varenka says, somewhat at a loss, how can the moon cross it? I do not reply. I feel my liver puffing up. <laughs> oh, it's all poppycock, Mashenka's mama announces. One can never foretell what is about to happen, and furthermore, not once have you been up in the sky, so how can you possibly know what will happen to the sun and the moon? It is nothing but fantasy. Suddenly, a black patch begins to move across the sun. Total confusion ensues. Cows, sheep, and horses run neighing and bellowing across the fields, their tails in the air. Dogs howl. Bedbugs, imagining that night has fallen, come creeping out of the cracks in the walls and bite those still in their beds. The deacon, who is transporting cucumbers from his garden, jumps out of his cart in terror and hides under the bridge. His horse, wandering on with the cart into a nearby yard where the pigs start eating the cucumbers. The tax inspector, who has not slept at his house that night, but at the house of a lady who is spending the summer in the country, comes running out in nothing but his nightshirt, flings himself into the crowd, shouting, Run for your lives! Ladies, even pretty and young ones, come rushing out of their houses without as much as putting their slippers on. And much more that I hesitate to describe. Oh, how dreadful, the brightly frilled young ladies shriek. How dreadful. Madame, keep watching the eclipse. Keep watching, I shout. Time is of the essence. I make haste to measure the diameter. I glance in the direction of the wounded officer to see if he's making a diagram of the corona. He's just standing there. What are you doing? I shout. Have you forgotten about the corona? He shrugs his shoulders, weakly nods towards the brightly frilled young ladies who have draped themselves onto his arms, huddling against him in fear, preventing him from his work. I grab a pencil and note the hour, minute and second. This is of great importance. I note the geographical position of our point of observation. This is also of great importance. I'm about to measure the diameter when Mashanka seizes my hand. Don't forget, she says, today at 11 o'clock. I pull my hand away. Every second is of the essence. I attempt to continue my observations, but Varenka grabs my arm, latches onto my side. My pencil, tinted glass and diagrams go tumbling into the grass. The devil take it! It is time that this young lady realizes that I am a hot-tempered man, and when I am roused and I am seized by fury, I cannot answer for my actions. (laughs) 
I try to continue my observations, but the eclipse is over. <laughs> Look into my eyes. Nadenka whispers softly. This is beyond what flesh and blood can bear. Toying with a man's patience in this fashion can only lead to tragedy. Do not blame me. If something dreadful happens, I will permit no one to trifle with me, to turn me into a figure of fun. By Beelzebub, when I am in the clutches of fury, I can only advise all and sundry to keep their distance. Anything might happen. I did exactly what you told me, Nikolai Andreevich, one of the young ladies says in an attempt to calm me, probably noticing from my countenance that I am in the clutches of fury. I was observing the animals. I saw how a grey dog, just before the eclipse, chased a cat and then wagged his tail for quite a while. <laughs> so nothing's come of the eclipse. I go home. As it's raining, I don't go onto the balcony to work. The wounded officer has recklessly ventured out onto his balcony and even managed to pen the words, I was born in, and peering from my window, I see one of the brightly frilled young ladies marching him off to her house. I cannot work, as I am still in the clutches of fury, my heart palpitating. I refrain from going to the alcove at 11 o'clock. This is discourteous, but as you must agree, a fellow cannot be expected to go strolling about in the pouring rain. At 12 o'clock, I receive a letter from Mashenka filled with chastisements, insisting that I immediately come to the alcove, addressing me with untoward familiarity. At one o'clock, I receive a second letter. And at two, a third. I will have to go. But before I do, I must think through what I will say to her. I will be a gentleman. To begin with, I will make it clear that it is futile for her to go about imagining that I love her. Yet come to think of it, a gentleman cannot inform a lady of such a thing. Telling a lady, I do not love you, is as ill-mannered as telling an author, I do not think you can write. The best tactic will be to inform Varenka of my views on marriage. I put on a warm coat, take my umbrella, and go to the rendezvous. Aware of what a hot-tempered man I can be, I am afraid of saying something untoward. I shall strive to restrain myself. Nadenka is waiting for me in the alcove, pale and with teary eyes. On seeing me, she emits a joyful cry and throws her arms around me. <sighs> At last, you've been testing my patience. I haven't slept a wink all night thinking things through. I have come to the conclusion that once I've gotten to know you better, I will come to love you. <laughs> I take a seat and begin to expound upon my views of marriage. In order to cut to the chase, I begin with a brief historical survey, <laughs> starting out with marriage in ancient India and Egypt, and then progressing to more recent times, while setting forth a few ideas from Schopenhauer. <laughs> Mashenka listens attentively, but suddenly her thoughts clearly muddled. She calls out, Nicholas, kiss me. I'm quite at a loss of what to say. She repeats her demand. What is a fellow to do? I, I get up and press my lips against her thin face, feeling just as I had once felt as a boy when I had been made to kiss my dead grandmother at her funeral. <laughs>
Not content with the kiss, Varenka jumps up and impetuously throws her arms around me. At that very instant, her mama appears at the entrance to the alcove. Her face evinces alarm and whispering shh to someone next to her. She vanishes like Mephistopheles through the trap door. Flustered and furious, I return home. There I find Varenka's mama embracing my mama with tears in her eyes. And my mama, weeping, declares, finally, my hopes have come true. <laughs> and then, of all things, Narenka's mama comes marching up to me and embraces me. May God bless the two of you, she tells me. Love her well, for she is truly making a great sacrifice on your account. <laughs> so here I am, being married off. My groomsmen are hovering around me as I write these final words, urging me to make haste. These fellows are toying with the wrong man. I have a hot-tempered nature and cannot answer for my actions. Damn it all, just wait. There'll be hell to pay. Marching a furious, hot-tempered man to the altar in this fashion is, mark my words, as unwise as thrusting one's hand into the cage of an angry tiger. Just you wait. Just you wait. So now I am a married man. <laughs> All and sundry congratulate me, and Varenka, clinging to me, her nose swelling, says, that's it, now you're mine. Mine. Tell me that you love me. I hear from the groomsmen that the wounded officer has managed with admirable dexterity to sidestep the snares of matrimony, he presented the brightly frilled young lady with a medical certificate, testifying that the wound in his temple had left him mentally incapacitated, and that he is consequently prohibited by law from entering into wedlock. True genius. <laughs> I too could have presented a certificate. I had an uncle who would drink himself into delirium and another uncle who was quite scatterbrained. He once mistakenly placed a lady's muff on his head instead of a hat. And, and I had an aunt who would play the piano incessantly and stick her tongue out at gentlemen. <laughs> and then there is my hot-tempered nature. That in itself is a highly suspicious symptom. But why do these great ideas always come so late? <laughs> why? Sam Underwood performed From the Diary of a Hot-Tempered Man by Anton Chekhov, Translated by Peter Constantine. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Like most actors, I'm a huge Chekhov fan, more as a viewer than as a performer, but I did have the pleasure of recording a very, very funny short story by Chekhov called A Drama, which involves a, uh, a not very good but very pushy playwright who comes to the, the house of a, of, a, of a great playwright and insists on reading her entire terrible play to the helpless, aggravated man, 
who finally is so overcome that he, he kills her. And the jury acquits him because, really, who can blame him? Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts, and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space. <laughs>